grab a Bible, and eventually we're really going to camp a little bit in 1 Samuel 24. We're going to look at a few other passages in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at the book of Psalms a little bit, uh, but 1 Samuel is where we're at. Last week we were off for Light the Night, and so it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at um, David, and I just want to remind you sort of where we left off in the storyline. Where we were previously, Saul was trying to kill David. He made eight initial attempts to murder David or to have David put to death. David eventually, uh, after escaping a number of times, decides, I got to run, I got to get out of here. He takes off and he goes to a place called Nob. And Nob, he interacts with a priest named Ahimelech and he lies to that priest. He lies to his face so that he can get food and so that he can get a sword. And he takes off. That lie eventually results in Saul and a guy named Doug the Edomite killing 85 people who lived in Nob, the priests and all their families. Everyone died, and it all traces back to David's stop there. After he's in Nob lying, he goes to Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. He's in Philistine country, and he gets himself in a pickle, and he starts drooling on himself, scratching on the walls, acting like a crazy man to convince them that he's insane, and that's how he escapes. And we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. David is a man on the run, and tonight we're going to look at some of his running and some of the running that he did in a place called En Gedi. So before we do that, I want to talk to you about camping. Have you ever been to church and the preacher said something like, this was perfect timing for me to talk about something this morning, the, the stars just aligned? In the office today, I'm not going to tell you who, but in the office today there was conversation about camping and some wanted to go camping, and some were not so excited about camping. And so I'm going to share with you some quotes about camping. Here we go. Number one, camping is nature's way of promoting the hotel industry. Number two, this one sounds like it came from Linden. If you know Linden, you'll agree with me. How is it that one match can start a forest fire, but it takes a whole box of matches to start a campfire? <laughs> camping, number three. Donating blood to one mosquito at a time. I like this one. Camping. It's the art of getting closer to nature while getting further away from cold drinks, hot showers, and flushing toilets. Camping. Where you spend a small fortune to live like a homeless person. Two more good ones. Going camping is the perfect reminder of how great life is when you aren't camping. Amen to that. This one's my favorite. This comes from Jim Gaffigan. My wife says camping is a tradition in her family. It was a tradition in everyone's family until we invented the house. <laughs> camping is so great, uh, Americans and people in Western Europe have turned it into, it's no longer camping, it's glamping. Glamping. Glamorous camping. And in case you're curious, that word first appeared in the UK in 2005. It showed up in the Oxford English Dictionary in 2016. That's a real word now. It's official. It's in the dictionary. And it's glamorous camping. It describes camping with amenities. So I'm going camping, but in my tent that's already set up for me, there's a king-size bed and an air conditioner and a television 
and Wi-Fi and a nice shower right next door. That's glamping. And some of you are excited about the possibility of glamping, not camping. I want you to understand what David is doing when he's running from Saul. It is not glamping. It is wilderness survival at its worst. Okay? Wilderness survival at its worst. I'll put a map up here just so you can have an idea of some of the areas we've talked about recently. Uh, you see Jebus, that's the ancient name of Jerusalem. Uh, up north is Ramah in Gibeah, uh, Saul's territory. And you see Nob right there by Jerusalem uh, where David went and lied to the priest and all of the, the 85 people who lived there were slaughtered. You see Bethlehem, David's hometown. You see Gath where he went. And he's drooling on himself. Tonight we're going to talk about Moab. At one point he crosses the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and he's over in Moab. And tonight the main story is in a place called En Gedi. And I'm just going to show you some pictures of what it looks like in En Gedi. That's it. It's just rocks and dirt and sand. And I put those four up there and I thought I could almost take a picture of like Big Bend Uh, West Texas and put it up there and you guys probably wouldn't know the difference. It's just barren. It's empty. There's nothing. The Dead Sea is right there next to it and it's just a absolute wasteland and this is the area for much of David's running from Saul where he's just sort of running around trying to survive and I show you the pictures just so you get the idea. He's not running around where there's creeks and Deer and fish and lakes and uh, nice cover from the sun and shade. I mean, he's exposed out in the elements. He's on the run. Food is scarce. Life hardly exists out here. And this is where David is trying to survive, running for his life as a fugitive from Saul. Chuck Swindoll says it like this. This was the lowest moment in David's life to date. And the only thing I would ask you to do on this quote is underline the words to date. We are going lower than this. But at this point, this is the new low. If you want to know how he really felt, just read the song he composed about it, Psalm 142. We're going to look at it in a minute. He had no security. He had no food. He had no one to talk to. He had no promise to cling to. He had no hope that anything would ever change. He was alone in a dark cave away from everything and everybody he loved, everybody except God. And that's the key to what we're talking about tonight. So take your Bible. We're going to start off looking at a few verses in 1 Samuel 22. I want you to understand that David's time in the wilderness was a time of testing. It was a time, a season of testing. And I just want you to be mindful of how David is going into this period of testing. He goes to Nob and he lies to the face of one of the spiritual leaders in Israel. He's lying to a pastor, lying to his priest. Second, he ends up in Gath, and he's so terrified, this brave hero who was willing to fight Goliath with a sling and a stone is so terrified of the men in Gath that he's drooling on himself, acting like a crazy man. The anointed king of Israel, making an utter fool of himself, in front of the Philistines, and now he walks into a time of testing, and as if his spiritual condition was not a big enough strike against him, I want you to note a few things here. Number one, he had the added burden of caring for his family. We talked about this 
several weeks ago. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, David departed from there. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David was a state fugitive, a wanted man in Israel. That put his entire family at risk. And they have nowhere else to go but to run to David in the wilderness and ask David to take care of them. You know, if you've been paying attention to the story, his relationship with his family wasn't great. When Samuel came to anoint a king, his father left David, the Hakatan, the runt, out in the field. When David goes to the battle lines against the Philistines, his brothers are there and they tease him. They mock him. They make fun of him. They tell him to go away. You have no business, business being here. You're just sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. Relationship with his family is not great. Now they come to him and they're needy. We haven't been the best to you, but now we need you. And David has this burden added to his plate, added to this experience of testing. Second, he had the burden, the added burden, of leading a band of malcontents. Chapter 22, verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them, and there were there with him about 400 men. 400 distressed, in debt, bitter in soul, malcontents. A bunch of disgruntled people gathered around David, and his job now is to, to lead these people. You know as well as I do, misery loves company. You know as well as I do, when you find yourself around negative people, at some point you just start to feel negative. Even if you're an optimist, even if you're upbeat, even if you're positive, at some point you just begin to say, ah, these people are dragging me down. David has 400 of them around him, and he's going to face a test. Thirdly, he has the added burden of being a wanted man. And I want to just quickly look at a few verses in 1 Samuel 23. I want you to get the feel for this. Already there's been eight attempts on David's life. Eight attempts before he finally runs away. Look at 1 Samuel 23, verse 3. David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Essentially, they're saying, look, we're scared here. Saul's going to come get us, but we're scared to go there because they're going to fight us. They're going to attack us. Either way we go, we've got to fight, and we're terrified. He's on the run. Look at verse 13, chapter 23, verse 13. David and his men, who are about 600, so he's added to the group, they arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. Just think about that. Every day, the king is trying to kill you every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out. Why? To seek his life. He was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. Look down at verse 19. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Isn't David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? We know where he's at. Go get him. So He's got help. Look at chapter 23, verse 20. Five, Saul and his men went to seek him. 
David was told, so he went down to the rock and he lived in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him. Wouldn't you like a little more detail on what does closing in mean? Could they see him? Were they a stone's throw away? Could they hear him? Could they see, you know, the old Western movie where the, you look on the horizon and you see the cloud of dust and the, the bad guy's chasing the good guy or the good guy's chasing the bad guy and you're just chasing that cloud of dust? I don't know. They're closing in to capture them. And at that moment, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come home. The Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and he went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there, and he lived in the strongholds in En Gedi. Look at the very next verse, chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. He's chasing him. He's following him. He's pursuing him. He's a wanted man. David has all of these added burdens on his life, and he's about to experience a test. There's another side to this, and I want you to see this. David's time in the wilderness was a time of encouragement and focus. At key moments, God provides encouragement to David. Not a lot, but enough. And David, despite all the added burden, despite all the drama in his life in this moment, is actually focusing on the Lord. And so I'll give you a few examples here. Number one, he finds an ally in the king of Moab. You can look at chapter 22, verse 3. He goes to Moab. He asks the king, will you let my family stay here? And the king of Moab says, yes. I'll keep your family safe. You sort of wonder, why, why did he do that for David? Is it because David's great-great-grandma was a Moabite? Is it because he hated Saul and knew David was his enemy? You don't know, but there was encouragement there. Second, he found a spiritual advisor in the prophet Gad. You see that in chapter 22 as well. He's in Moab, and Gad comes to him and says, you need to go back. The, the anointed king cannot live here in Moabite territory. You need to go back over. And he's described as a, a prophet. He's called a prophet, and David listens to him. Chapter 22, verse 5, the prophet Gad said, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart, go to the land of Judah. So he departed, and he went. He's listening to God's messenger. Later in the story, we'll get there in the spring, Gad is a very trusted friend. He's an advisor to David, and that begins right here. Thirdly, he gets encouragement from his best friend, Jonathan. I want you to see this. It's a very short episode. 1 Samuel 23 Verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and he went to David at Horesh and he strengthened his hand in God. So it was not just buddies meeting up. This was two followers of Yahweh meeting up. And Jonathan isn't there just to pat him on the back and tell him it's okay. He's there to strengthen him in God. He said to him, Jonathan to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father will not find you, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. There's encouragement in all of this crisis that David is juggling. Lastly, 
David found refuge in his relationship with the Lord. And this is a key word in David's life when you work through the book of Psalms. This word refuge. He finds refuge in the Lord. Hold your spot. Flip over and look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57. There's a note on this psalm and it says, To the choir master according to do not destroy. Meaning that's the tune. The song is called, the tune is called, do not destroy. It's a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So he wrote this when he's on the run and Saul is trying to kill him. We'll just read it quickly. He says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me for in you my soul takes refuge. I don't take refuge in the 600 guys who will fight with me to the death. I don't take refuge in my ability to run faster than Saul or in the caves that I'm hiding in or the strongholds that I'm holding up in. I take refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. There's hope in that verse. There's an acknowledgement that there's a storm and that destruction is all around him, but there's also hope that at some point it's going to pass. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out of His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. You can imagine David writing that and feeling like every time I lay my head down to sleep, I know that there's a a death squad hunting for me. While I go to sleep, fiery beasts all around me, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I just want you to notice how big David's vision of God is. He has every reason to turn inward and to think only about himself and his own problems and his own crisis and his own drama. And instead, his mind is going to God's glory being spread all over the entire world earth. Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Makes you think of they're closing in on David. And at just that moment, they get attacked and they have to leave. I don't know if that's what he's thinking about. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake my harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Interesting, he's literally running among the nations. He's a fugitive live, living in Gath, living in Moab, living wherever he can find refuge. And he says, wherever I'm at, among whoever can hear me, I'm going to sing your praises. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Flip over and look at Psalm 142. Much shorter. Psalm 142, it says it's a mascal of David when he was in the cave of prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. 
When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I have no refuge. Look at verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. David wouldn't agree with the the nonsense that God won't give you more than you can handle. He just said to God, "They're, they're too strong. I don't have any place to take refuge. My only hope is that you would be my refuge. I cannot handle this situation, and I'm looking to you to help it. It's a time of focus for David. Maybe there's something to the wilderness, being in the wilderness, being in a crisis that helps you focus on things that are really important. I bet your experience is a lot like mine. When life is good, when life is easy, when everything just sort of falls into place, it's very easy to forget that you need to focus on the Lord because everything's just sort of rolling. It's when the wheels come off the bus that you stop and you say, wait a minute, I can't do this. God can do it, and I need to focus on God, but I can't handle this. Maybe that's one of the reasons people actually do enjoy camping. I made fun of camping, but you know as well as I do, lots of people love to do it. And I think many of the people who like to do it would say to you, look, when you go camping, when you get out in the wilderness, you get away from this. Nobody's phone's going to start reading the Bible on Wednesday night Bible study. I think we got a streak of like 30 Wednesday nights in a row with phones going off. That's okay. Distractions, right? All the time. They take your attention. They take your focus. You get out in the wilderness, there's no phones unless you're glamping. There's no internet unless you're glamping. You can get away from all of that stuff. Maybe that's why when we send our youth to camp in the summer, and they come home and they're so excited about Jesus, and we all sort of roll our eyes and say, eh, you're a bunch of emotional teenagers, which they are. But maybe there's something to the fact that they've gotten out of their normal routine. They've gone away to a different place. They've been forced to have a quiet time when they wake up in the morning. They've been forced to sit through Bible study. They've been forced to sit through worship services. They've sang. They've had the Word of God pounded into them, hopefully if the camp preacher is good. What do you expect to happen at the end of a week like that? Out in the wilderness, focusing on God. Kind of what you see in David's life here. I think it's one of the reasons that God builds rest and rhythm into our lives. Where he says, look, you got a lot of stuff to do. You're busy people. But once a week, I need you to stop. I need you to stop. You don't need to do anything. I need you to stop. And I need you to focus on me. Because if you just get busy and keep rolling, it's going to be so easy to lose your focus. So I'm building this into creation. I'm building this into my law that you stop once a week and you focus on me. Maybe it's why God sends you into seasons of life that you would describe as a wilderness. Maybe God is trying to get your attention in some way, shape, or form. I think this week alone, if I go back over the last seven days, I bet I've talked to at least 20 people who would say to me, 
I kind of feel like I'm in the wilderness right now. And I don't, maybe it's a health thing, maybe it's a work thing, maybe it's a money thing, maybe it's a family thing, maybe it's a life transition thing. It's lots of different things. But maybe one of the reasons God sends you into those wilderness experiences is so that you stop and you focus. And I just want to point out something pretty remarkable. David, he lies to the priest. Lies to the priest. He acts like a fool in front of the Philistines. He's a cowardly fool. And somewhere in there, the light bulb goes off and he realizes, i got to focus on the Lord. I, I can't drool my way out of this one. I can't lie my way out of this one. God is the only way I'm going to get out of this thing alive. And he begins to focus on the Lord. Lakato says it like this. Make God your refuge. Not your job, not your spouse, not your reputation, not your retirement account. You can fill in the blank beyond that. Not any other thing. Make God your refuge. And David gets to the point in life where he looks around and he says, I don't have any refuge. I have none. Everything supporting me has been kicked out from under me. You're my refuge. i got nowhere else to turn, which is exactly where God wants him to turn. And it puts David in exactly the right state of mind, frame of mind, for this test. Okay, so let's talk about chapter 24. David passed the test in the wilderness, and he spared Saul's life twice. Twice. You can look at chapter 26. I want us to look at most of chapter 24. David spares Saul's life twice. And I just want to, before we read it, I want to set a parallel in your mind so that you're thinking about this. I want you to think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, they're together, a perfectly suited helpmate with the other, full bellies, no danger, comfort, Everything is perfect. And in the midst of that, they face a test, or you could say a temptation. And the question before them is, will you grasp for what is not yours? Will you grasp for the one thing that's been set off limits? And they fail the test. Consider the parallels and the contrast with David. He's not in the garden, he's in the wilderness. You saw the pictures. He doesn't have a great helpmate with him. He has 600 knuckleheads. His belly is not full. He's hungry. He hadn't had a good night's sleep. He's tired because every time he lays his head down to go to sleep, he's afraid someone's going to kill him in the middle of the night. He is not safe. He is very much in danger. And he faces tests. Saul is presented right before him. And the question is, David, are you going to cross this line? Are you going to grasp for this thing that is not yours to grasp for? Are you going to put this man to death? You can imagine the temptation in his mind. This will solve all my problems. If I kill this man, it fixes everything. You can see Adam and Eve in the garden. God has set this one thing beyond us. If we just grasp it, it fixes everything that's wrong. We just need to grasp for it. And there's David. What's he going to do? Look at chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in 
to relieve himself. That word relieve himself literally means he went in to cover his feet, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us because it's an idiom. We have idioms in English, and if you don't know what they mean, then you don't know what they mean, and you look like an idiot. The Hebrew idiom cover your feet means, I'm just going to be as blunt and as tactful as I can, you go number two and you use your feet to cover it up. Cover your feet. Okay, So when you say to your kid, do you need to go number two? Well, if you don't know what that means, go number two. What are you talking about? Are we doing math? You say, no, that's not what that means. He goes in to cover his feet. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 4. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David, you remember what kind of men these are? Malcontents, debtors, disgruntled angry, rough, wilderness survival guys. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David thinks he's gone too far. He thinks, I've crossed a line that I shouldn't have crossed. What about his men? He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's, Yahweh's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up, and left the cave, and went on his way. David thinks he's gone too far. The men think he hasn't gone nearly far enough. They wanted to attack. I just want you to think about David cutting the corner of this robe off. I'll give you a couple of possibilities, and you can weigh them out. Some scholars say he snuck up. That was the easiest thing to grab. He chopped it off, and he had a little corner of fabric. Some scholars say there's a little bit more to it than that. Some say you can go back in the Old Testament, you can look in the Torah, in the book of Numbers. There's instructions that the garments of the people of Israel were to have a tassel on the corner. And the tassel, according to the book of Numbers, was to remind the people of God's commands. Every time you looked at that tassel on your clothes, you were to think, God gave us commandments and I'm supposed to follow them. And some scholars say what David did is he snuck up and he cut off that tassel of Saul's ceremonial robe, and it was a symbolic action so that when David holds up that tassel, there's Saul with his robe, and here's the tassel. David is in effect saying, you are guilty of breaking these commandments. You have abandoned the Lord, and he has abandoned you as king, and you are in violation of his clear commandments. Sounds pretty good, right? Maybe it was just the corner. I don't know. But he cuts it off. And his heart is struck, and he will not let the men. Verse 7, he persuaded them, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. I imagine that was about the most intense peer pressure David ever faced. I imagine that was not, look, it takes two seconds to read that verse. I imagine that was a pretty intense back and forth. The whispers got about as loud as they could get and still be whispers. And they were saying, This is your chance. It's right there. They even try to spiritualize it, right? 
This is God's doing. God's behind this. Just reach out. Do one wicked thing. Kill this man when he doesn't see you coming, and all our problems go away. There's the test. If he hasn't been focusing on the Lord, and this is the guy lying to the priest and drooling in Gath, he pulls out a sword and he kills him on the spot. But he's been focusing on the Lord and he knows the Lord is my refuge. My refuge is not in getting rid of Saul. Saul can come or go, there will be another one just like him. The Lord is my refuge. I want you to look at what comes next in verse 8. This is the longest quote from David in the book of 1 Samuel, what we're about to read. The longest thing that David says in the book of 1 Samuel. And then Saul's going to speak, and it's the longest thing Saul says in the entire Bible. These are long quotes. The author's given you a lot of information, so we ought to pay attention. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose. He went out of the cave. He called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of the robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. That I have not sinned against you. That's how David viewed it. This would be sin to murder that man. I'm not going to do it. Though you hunt my life to take it. May the, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Longest quote of David in the book. Here's Saul's reply. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord, Yahweh, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. He's already made that promise. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. How do you make sense of that conversation? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, David's respect for Saul was rooted in his fear of the Lord. Over and over again in that quote, he calls Saul Yahweh's anointed, the Lord's anointed. 
The reason David didn't kill this man is he knew that the Lord was involved in the entire situation. From Saul being king to David being anointed king to all this messy transition, he feared the Lord. His focus is on the Lord as his refuge, and he doesn't kill him. Robert Bergen says it like this, David's respect for human authority was based on his respect for divine authority. Eugene Peterson connects the wilderness theme we've talked about, and he says, David's wilderness-trained eyes looked on Saul and saw not Saul, an enemy, but Saul, the God anointed. In the solitude and silence and emptiness of the wilderness, uncluttered and undistracted by what everyone else was saying and doing, David was able to see God's glory where no one else could see it in Saul. He passes the test. He fears the Lord, and he doesn't kill him. What about Saul? I'll give you two theories here. Saul's reaction may have been a temporary change of heart, or it may have been self-preservation. Here's what you know. As soon as you turn the page, he tries to kill David again. Everything he says is really nice. I mean, it's really nice. It's spiritual, it's religious, it's reverent, uh, it's personal. He calls him his son, and he's weeping, and all of it. And he turns around, and he tries to kill him again. He hunts him down again. Saul was, if you've read the story up to this point, you know he was unstable on a lot of levels. So maybe this is just Saul going back and forth from sane to crazy to sane, good day, bad day. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe as David stands there with his men, there's some sort of tactical advantage and Saul does the math real quick and says, I better kiss up to this guy and say something nicer. He's going to kill me. He spared me in the cave, but he may not spare me out here. Maybe he's just trying to be nice and get himself out of a pickle. Either way, he turns on David quickly. And you can read chapter 26. It's just... Amazing to read it in chapter 26. Saul is sleeping. David and his nephew sneak into the camp. They're right there standing over Saul. And David's nephew says, give me the spear. I will put it through his heart and I will kill him. This is the chance. You you let him off last time. Don't let him off this time. And David does the same thing. He will not let Abishai kill him. He lies to Ahimelech. He drools on himself in Gath. And in Gedi, he passes the test. He doesn't cross the line. He doesn't sin against the Lord. He doesn't sin against Saul. He does not grasp for what is not his to grasp. Now look, I like what Tony prayed earlier. David, a good example and a bad example. We have gone from lying to priests and acting like a crazy man to obeying in a very high-pressure situation. And as soon as we turn the page next week, we're going downhill. We're back down. Like this is the roller coaster, right? You're up and down, and you're up and down. And right now he's up, and he's about to go down. But when he's up, he's up, and he's obedient. And in his obedience, this experience gives us a preview of the greater David, who is Jesus. There's a picture of Jesus in what we've talked about, and I want you to see it as we close. Jesus shows us ultimately what it looks like to forgive your enemies. Jesus just doesn't, uh, doesn't just want you to forgive your family, your friends, but he wants you to forgive your enemies. And you see David doing that. Saul is trying to kill David, and he forgives him. 
He doesn't take vengeance on him. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Jesus, ultimately, when he's not just surrounded by men trying to kill him, but when he's surrounded by men who are killing him, prays for their forgiveness. He models that. David gives you a faint picture. Jesus gives you a clear picture, what it looks like to forgive your enemies. I'll let you read the Swindoll quote there. Secondly, in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted to bypass suffering and to take a shortcut to glory. Right? That same test that Adam and Eve faced is the same test that David's facing. It's the same test that Jesus faces in the wilderness. When Satan comes to him and he says, look, all this suffering can go away. Make some bread. That's all you got to do. Make bread. Look, if you were to jump off the temple, they're not going to let you hit the ground. God wouldn't let that happen to you, would he? He wouldn't let you suffer like that. Ultimately, he says, look, you don't need to go die for these people. Just bow down to me and I'll give you the nations. You don't need to die for them. You don't need to suffer for them. You don't need to take their punishment. Just one little act, one crossing of the line, and you can have it. All the glory, none of the suffering. And Jesus, just like David did, passes that test. He will not bypass suffering, and he will not take a shortcut to glory. Last, this is the best picture of the whole story in my mind. Today, Jesus is the unrecognized king gathering people and waiting for the day where he will be recognized as the king of kings. The whole scene of David on the run, he's already been anointed. The decision's already been made. Saul's already been rejected. And you just wonder, why is God letting the whole thing play out this way? Why not just be done with Saul and let's get David in there and let's move on with it? Why go through this period where the true king is on the run, persecuted, hunted down. No one recognizes him as the king at all. And yet he's gathering a bunch of people together. And they're all losers. They're misfits. They're people who, who don't belong anywhere else. And he's just waiting for the day when he's enthroned as king. That's exactly the situation that you and I live in right now. There is a king. He's the true king. Most people don't recognize him as the king. And his people in many places are not treated well. They're hunted down. They're persecuted. They're cut down. He's gathering these people together. And as Paul tells the Corinthians, they're mostly a bunch of misfits. Not a lot of wise. Not a lot of powerful. Just a bunch of weak fools that Jesus is gathering together. And what are they doing? They're just waiting. They're just waiting for him to come back. Waiting for Jesus to be recognized as the true king. That's what we do when we gather together on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning. We gather together and we sing about Jesus being the king. Have you ever thought about how foolish that looks to unbelievers? You're singing to a guy who's not even here? There's presidents and dictators and congresses and, and all sorts of governments around that you could submit to. You submit to an invisible king? Where is he? We pray to him. What do we pray? Your kingdom come. We're waiting for the kingdom. We're praying for the kingdom. We're hoping for the kingdom. We're longing for the kingdom. We send missionaries. 
What do we send them out to tell people? There's a God in heaven. You submit to Jesus as king, he will give you life forever. What a foolish message to the world. But that's what we're doing. We're living this same story that we're reading in 1 Samuel. There's a king. People don't recognize him. We're just waiting. And while we wait, we're going to tell as many people as possible about this king. It's what we hope in. We don't hope for some political party to save us. We don't hope for uh, financial blessings now. We don't hope for health and prosperity in this life. We hope that one day our king comes back and the world recognizes him as such. So that's David in En Gedi, and it gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus and us as his people.